Have you ever considered the great quantity of food that is needed to sustain a city? I've had this thought as I look at, to a city like Boston, right? All of these people need food every day. How is it that the city does not starve? In an illustration, Charles Spurgeon uh, once mentioned having this thought about London. But when he considered the market and the storehouses and the eagerness of people to obtain food, his mind was set at ease. So once he considered the great source of the city's supply, Spurgeon said this, My wonder henceforth is not that the millions are fed, but that they should be able to consume such immeasurable quantities of food. If we look at all the needs in this world, is it not easy to become overwhelmed? overwhelmed with what it takes to keep things running. Forget about all of the needs of the world. Just think about your own life. If you look at your to-do list, isn't it easy to become overwhelmed with all that needs to be done? We all experience the hunger and the toil of having to work for provision in this life. We all continue to need provision. There's no escaping this reality. We all need to eat. It's true physically that we have a need for provision, but it's also true spiritually. We all have physical and spiritual need for nourishment. Luke 9, 1 to 17, our text for today, prompts us to look away from our needs and look to our source of provision. I hope that we'll go from wondering how on earth will all of the needs in our lives be filled to, to wondering how we could possibly consume such immeasurable quantities of nourishment. The text shows us that God uses seemingly ordinary things for his extraordinary provision. Let me say that again. God uses seemingly ordinary things for his extraordinary provision. So as I said, our text is from Luke 9, 1 to 17. You can find the words in the bulletin. It's also on page 1101 in the Pew Bibles. We read Luke 9. And when he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart." And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some 
that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside and to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, and they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. When he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, sorry, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Before we go further in considering our text, let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that your word would speak to us. We pray that you would give us the spiritual nourishment that we are hungry for. God, we pray that you would work in ways that only you can work. Allow us to see the great source of your supply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, as we uh, consider this story, let's consider in verses 1 to 6. I want us to consider this point. God works through people. God works through people. So first, Jesus gathers the apostles. He gives them uh, power. It says uh, he gave them power and authority over demons and to cure disease. And then he gives them a message. He tells them to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's worth noting the similarity here between the ministry that Jesus is giving his disciples and Jesus' own ministry that we've seen up to this point. Let's consider back uh, to Luke 4. You might recall that Jesus taught from uh, Isaiah. Uh, He said he came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovery to the of the sight to the blind. And then as we have been working our way through Luke, we've seen that this is exactly what Jesus has been doing, right? He's been proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's been demonstrating that the kingdom is coming through these miraculous healings. He's giving sight to the blind, and even more significantly than the physical healings that he's doing, he is showing people that they are set free from the captivity of sin and death. And now, Jesus is giving this same work to his apostles. He's telling them uh, to share in the work 
of proclaiming the gospel. And he equips them for the task. He gives them power. He gives them the message that they are to proclaim. And now, while Jesus equips them in this way, he also tells them to go on their journey with nothing. Right? This is surprising. He tells them in verse 3, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So, while in a spiritual sense, Jesus equips the apostles, in a physical sense, he tells them, go out unprepared, it seems. Right? If we were going on a journey, wouldn't we make some necessary preparations? So this is a, a surprising, hard thing that Jesus tells his disciples to do, and yet they obey, they listen, they go out, and they proclaim the gospel. So this account demonstrates that God works through people. It might be easy to overlook this point. We might think, of course God works through people, right? This book is filled with God working through people, is it not? And yet, let us pay attention here. This is actually the first, it's an account of the first Christian missionary journey, right? It's the account of Jesus. Up into this point in his ministry, he's been doing the healing. He's been proclaiming the gospel. His disciples see him doing this, but he's the one doing this work. But then he passes it off to his apostles. This is a remarkable thing. Right, that God would use people in enacting his plan for redemption. That is nothing short of, amer- of, of amazing, right? I mean, just consider, sometimes I think we, we get this a little backwards. We think that God needs us, that he needs us to do his work. God does not need us. He is all-powerful and self-sufficient. From eternity past to eternity present, he has everything he needs in infinite measure, and yet he uses people. He uses ordinary people for his extraordinary purpose. So brothers and sisters, it's a remarkable privilege that we can share in the heralding of the gospel, of God's life-giving work. And he gives us this joy that we can share in it. He does not bypass the use of people in his plan, to bring about his kingdom on earth. And on one hand, we can look at the apostles and we recognize that there's a difference there between the apostles and us, right? They've been given a particular calling and a particular calling and authority over the church. They are given an uh, apostolic authority on which they will be the foundation for the church. And we don't have this apostolic authority But there are ways that we are very similar to the apostles, right? These are ordinary men, right? Fishermen, tax collectors. There's nothing in themselves that makes them extraordinary. No, what makes the apostles extraordinary is what Christ gives them. And now, consider what we've been given. We now have the message of the gospel. We have been equipped. We have been Uh, From the time of the apostles, now it has been passed down to us, and now stewards of the same message that Jesus is sending his apostles out to proclaim. Church, this 
message has passed down to us and let us understand that Christ equips his church. Christ will equip his church for the building of his kingdom. This, of course, has implications for how we would view the task of evangelism, right? That uh, it is a, a great gift. Consider that we have been given not just good news, we have been given the best news. We have been given the, the cure to not only the most deadly disease, no, we've been given the cure to the only truly deadly disease. We've been given the cure to sin and death. This is a remarkable gift. And we get to share in heralding it, right? This is nothing short of amazing. And let us not lose our wonder at the fact that God would use people. Now, if I'm honest, if I, if I were to consider, do I see this as such a great honorable privilege, the the greatest privilege that a human can have to herald the message of life to people. If I'm honest, I think oftentimes I fall short. Do I live as if the gospel is the most precious, most important thing, or do I sprinkle it in when it's convenient? Do we savor the gift of the gospel? This is one way that we see that God works through people in this passage. The other way is that the apostles need provision. They're going out unequipped, and God uses the kindness of strangers, the hospitality of uh, people that are just coming to know the apostles. He uses their hospitality as provision. So another implication here is that God works through people. God provides through people, not only in the gospel proclamation, but also in just the regular responsibilities that we are given. Do you see the responsibilities in your life as an opportunity to love God and to love others? In, in our work, right, in our family responsibilities, in the raising of children, children and the obedience to your parents, right? These are all opportunities to love God and to love each other. And the fact that God uses people, the fact that God provides through people ought to lead us to an outward orientation, right? We live in a culture that is so uh, self-directed, where our attention is focused on self but would we turn to others and recognize that we can be God's hand of provision to others, both in the gospel proclamation and in the ordinary acts of provision that God uses for his kingdom? Now, brothers and sisters, let us uh, continue on in this passage. Let us consider that the world does not recognize God's provision. This is verses 7 to 9. The world does not recognize God's provision. So word is spreading about Jesus' ministry. This was the case before he sends out the 12. So imagine now, right? He, people were hearing about his miracles. They were hearing about the kingdom of God. And then he multiplies that ministry by 12. 
So people are hearing word is spreading from the smallest villages to the most powerful man in Galilee, Herod Antipas. Herod is faced with this perplexing problem as he hears news about what's happening. He says, given all that we're hearing about Jesus, who could this man be? So now we read in verses 7 and 8. It was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. That's John the Baptist. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Is providing insight into what the crowds think about Jesus at this point. And then we see Herod's response in verse 9. He says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Right? So if we're just reading this for the first time, we see, oh, Herod's seeking to see Jesus. Isn't that a, a good thing? Isn't that nice? If we were to read on in Luke, we know that uh, Herod wants to see a sign. He wants to see the miraculous in Jesus, but he's not really particularly concerned with his significance. And so he ultimately treats him with contempt. And so both Herod and the crowds fail to see the full significance of who Jesus is. Maybe he's a prophet. The world is confused about who Jesus is. The crowds say, uh, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's a prophet of old, but they don't recognize him as the Christ, as the one who comes to take away the sins of the world, who cleanses us from our sins, who was crushed for our iniquities and pierced for our transgressions. They don't recognize him as that. No, they might even see him as a man of God, but they fail to grasp that he is God's ultimate provision for us. And Herod, he, he's intrigued by Jesus, but he's not submissive to Jesus. He's not submissive to Jesus's, uh, to, to who Jesus is. I mean, consider, Herod is the most powerful man in Galilee, and he's hearing news about people that don't even have two tunics going around spreading this news of the gospel, and he, he thinks, so what? Right? That's a question that we have to ask. I remember sharing uh, the gospel with a friend in college once, and he came back with the response, so what? What's the, what does it matter who Jesus is? Right? That's a question that we have to ask. We need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus, and why does that matter? The question for us to consider today is, does Jesus' identity impact my life? Not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. How is Jesus significant in my life? Do I see him merely as a miracle worker? Or do I see him as what he really is? God in the flesh who has come to take away our sins that we can have life in him. Do I see this word as just words on a page or do I see it as the word of God that makes provision for our spiritual lives? This is our daily bread, brothers and sisters. Which brings us to our last point here. That God, God's provision is ultimately realized in Christ. God's provision is ultimately 
realized in Christ. We see this in verse 10 to 17. So the apostles, they return from their trip. They have a lot of stories to tell. They tell Jesus all that they had done. They learned firsthand about God's faithfulness to provide. They went out without the, the necessary physical provisions and God was faithful. Now, as is often the custom, uh, Jesus withdraws with the twelve to a desolate place. But the crowds hear that he's there. They hear about the twelve as well. Remember, uh, they're doing this amazing work as well. So crowds are drawn in from all over, and they, they come because they hear Jesus is there. And then we read partway through verse 11. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus is continuing to do this same type of ministry that he has been doing, the same type of ministry that he sent the apostles to do. In verse 14, we learn that uh, this crowd is a great crowd, a crowd of 5,000 men. This likely does not include uh, women and children, and so this would have been a crowd of many thousands. This massive crowd in this desolate place. Now, the day is getting late, and the apostles realize that, oh, this is a big crowd. It's going to get dark, and they're going to be hungry. Right? They know a thing or two about having to find provision, and so they uh, wisely say to Jesus, hey, we need to do something about this crowd. You should send them away. Right? But then Jesus' response is surprising. We read in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. I mean, can you imagine Jesus telling you to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Can you imagine that? I mean, what must the disciples have been thinking, right? Like, Jesus, come on, can you do math? That doesn't feed 5,000 people. But Jesus does what no man had ever done. He takes the loaves and the fish and he uses it to feed these 5,000 people, demonstrating his ability to provide. And he not only provides, right? It's not like people were eating crumbs and they were still hungry. No, they ate to the full and then there were 12 baskets left over. Jesus is able to provide far more abundantly than we can even imagine. Now, this is an interesting, uh, interesting miracle, right? And what makes it even uh, more remarkable is this miracle is mentioned in all four Gospels. There's only two miracles that are mentioned in all four Gospels. There's this one, and then there's Jesus' resurrection, right? So we get the sense from that that this is a significant miracle, and yet it can be hard to grasp the full significance, the full weight of what is happening here. So let us consider the context, right? There's been this question that has been reoccurring in the Gospel of Luke. We saw it in uh, chapter 7 when John's disciples come to ask Jesus who he is, right? The question is, who, who is Jesus? 
right? So we saw it in chapter 7. We see it in chapter 8 when Jesus' disciples uh, ask, when he calms the storm, what man could do this? Who is this man? And then we see it again here in verse 9. Herod is asking, who is this man? So interesting, uh, interestingly, this story is sandwiched between uh, Herod missing Jesus' identity and then finally Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ as we will see in next week's passage. And so this miracle serves the purpose of clarifying who Jesus is and how his disciples are to relate to him. Right, consider with me once more, we're going to look at verse 13. You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. So Jesus gives his apostles an impossible task, feed this crowd with food that you do not have. Right? But, Jesus takes what they do have and he uses it to make them instruments for feeding the crowd, right? Is this not what he was doing in verses 1 to 6 when he sends them out to the villages? He's sending them out with the gospel to give life to people. He's saying, feed the crowds with something that you do not have, and yet use what you do have to be instruments, and I will equip you. That is what Jesus does. Now, if we come back to this story here, if Jesus wanted to, he could have made bread from nothing. He could have taken away the hunger of the crowds without involving the apostles, but he chooses to use them for his glorious purpose. And it's not as if the apostles bring a little bit and Jesus brings a little bit, And, you know, that's how the crowd gets fed. I mean, really, compared to what Jesus supplies, the apostles bring nothing. And yet, the Lord uses what little they have that they might share in this act of love towards the crowd. The Lord invites them to share in the blessing of being able to love and serve this crowd by feeding them. This is how God uses seemingly ordinary things for the extraordinary provision of his people. So the key here is that we acknowledge that we recognize he is the source of our provision. God is the source of our provision. Now, if we stop with just thinking about physical provision, if we stopped with thinking Jesus is able to uh, make bread and fish come into our lives physically, right? He's able to give us the physical provision. We have missed the point. It is good and right to acknowledge that God is the one that physically provides for us, and we ought to be thankful and, and give praise to him for that, but there is greater significance here. Our most significant need is not physical. No, our most significant need, the the greatest need that we have in our lives is that apart from him, we are dead. This is a spiritual need. We need spiritual nourishment far more than we need physical nourishment. 
and he is the only one who can give it. Right? If we consider uh, a little bit more of the biblical context of what Jesus is doing, this uh, miracle might remind us of something. In Exodus 16, we learn about how God provides for the Israelites. They have just uh, left Egypt. They've just been freed from the bondage of Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're hungry. And God provides for them. He provides bread from heaven. Now, what makes this even more remarkable is when we understand what that bread from heaven represents. You see, Jesus, uh, actually, a great thing for any of us to do, a great way to apply what we're learning here today would be to read John chapter 6. Read all of it, right? We can't do that now, right? But in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, but then we get a little bit more of the story. We understand that the crowds follow Jesus seeking physical nourishment. They want bread, so they, they seek after him, they follow him. And yet, Jesus teaches that there's greater significance to this miracle. In John chapter 6, verse 33, referring back to the feeding of the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is God's provision. God's provision ultimately realized in Christ. You see, Christ not only gives provision. If we think that Christ just gives provision, we've missed it. Christ is our provision. He is the bread from heaven, and he has been broken for us that we might have life in him. Now, as we conclude, I want us to consider Okay, God uses seemingly ordinary things for the extraordinary provision of his people. Let us ask this question. How might God use our ordinary lives for his purposes? Now, you might be hearing this and you might think, this all sounds great. It's great that God uses ordinary things for, his, for, for the provision of his people, for his great and glorious purposes. But what about me? Could God possibly use me? Maybe you look at past sins and you think to yourself, how can this sin be forgiven? I know God forgives, but can he forgive this? Or maybe it's not even past sins. Maybe you're thinking of something that you've been wrestling with that you just can't seem to shake. You think, will God really use this broken vessel for his glorious purpose? How can this be? It's not just sin that might make a person feel this way. No, we have these shortcomings, right? We, we might think of all of the ways that we are inadequate. Lord, my shortcomings are too great. You cannot use me. I have a short temper. My speech is not eloquent. I feel worn out. I am exhausted by the cares of this world. How could you use me? 
Maybe I'm not knowledgeable enough. What if somebody starts asking questions and I don't know the answer? God, how can you use me? I'm sure if we thought long enough, each of us could fill this room with reasons why God could not use us. Well, might surprise you to hear me say this. But in one sense, we're right to feel inadequate. In ourselves, we are inadequate. We are like the apostles, right, who have five loaves and two fish, and we're called to feed the crowds. How can this be? We are inadequate for this task. In comparison to God, brothers and sisters, we, we, we might look at these things, we see these glorious things, and we think, Lord, in comparison to you, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. The nations are dust and the scales. How could you use me? And this is the most remarkable truth. All of that is true, and yet God still loves us. And he shows his love that he makes us fit for the task. He equips us. He provides for us. And not only does he equip us, brothers and sisters, we were sinners and he made us alive in him. It's through Christ's death on an ordinary cross that we are given the righteousness of Christ. This is how God uses ordinary things for the extraordinary provision of his people. So I implore us to look together to the source of our great provision. Some of us continue to sit near the table of God's grace, hoping to catch some breadcrumbs. But brothers and sisters, we have been invited to a feast. Come. Now, I began with a quote from Spurgeon as he looked to uh, the, the great need for food for the city of London. And he, he marveled, how could the city not starve? And he changes to looking at the source and then he wonders, how can people eat all of this food? Well, I close with finishing that quote from Spurgeon. When I behold man's spiritual need, I marvel that it should ever be met. But when I behold the person and work of the Lord Jesus, my marvel ceases, and a new wonder begins. I wonder rather at the infinity of grace than at the power of sin.